0: Welcome to Ballistic Radio. Join us as we explore the subtlety and nuance inside the world of personal protection. Listen as industry experts, thought leaders, and pioneers investigate why it depends is the answer of champions. Ballistic Radio, critical thought over empty rhetoric. Ballistic Radio is brought to you by Big Tech's Ordinance. Big Tech's Ordinance, where every customer is a friend, not just an order. Visit them online at bigtechsordinance.com. And now, here's your host john johnston
1: welcome to ballistic radio brought to you by big Tex ordinance where every customer is a friend not just an order visit them online at big i'm your host john johnston remember you can always listen to past shows at ballisticradio.com get the latest behind the scenes info photos videos arguments other things at facebook.com slash ballistic radio though i am realizing joe as i say that i'm like i haven't posted anything on the Facebook page in a in a couple weeks. I haven't seen anything on the Facebook, no. No, no. I've uh, I've grown weary with the world of men and And the Facebook. Yes, yeah, specifically the Facebook. Well so that that's the funny thing, right? Is if um, if in general you are trying to be a calmer, kinder, gentler, better version of yourself. Facebook seems to be a bad place. Just stay that. away from the Facebook and the Twitter. Yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> but uh, so you know, there sh- there should be some stuff on the Facebook at some point relatively soon. I uh, I will commit to doing a post on Facebook today. Yeah. Yeah. Mm, sure. Neat. I can't wait to meet neat, meet. Neat. That's great. <laughs> but uh, hey, I am super super excited and pleased and happy and thrilled welcome one of my favorite people onto the show, Professor David Yamani. David, how's it going?
0: Well, if I wasn't awake before that introduction, I'm awake now, so thank you for that little boost of energy. I'm I'm really excited to be here, as always.
1: (laughs) You sound so excited, too. It's just like it is just dripping off of your, your dulcet tones. I'm just... That's my professional level of excitement right there. Oh, your professional level of excitement. Okay. Uh, Hey, I'll take it. I'll take it. So for those that don't know, who are you? What do you do? And then we'll kind of hop into the show.
0: Well, uh, I'm a professor of sociology at Wake Forest University in North Carolina. And for the past 10 years, I've been doing a kind of deep dive into American gun culture. It's a combination of both my my personal development and evolution into a gun owner and also the academic study of guns from a sociological perspective. And uh, this is where I'm at.
1: Cool, cool. Now, I have to ask, because I know a little bit about you, and I know how you got into gun culture, I guess. And do you ever have moments where you wish you hadn't been channel surfing that one night when top shot came on, like,
0: (laughs) yeah, well, this, it is the case that, you know, I thought that I kind of was having this unique personal experience of, you know, discovering guns and getting into shooting. But then as a sociologist, I couldn't help but step back and realize that there were these broader cultural sort of normalizing guns for me even before I realized I was interested in them. Um, You know, it's, I think, frustrating and can be stressful to involve yourself in in guns because it's such a politically fraught issue. There are so many uh, social uh, stressors that surround it. Uh, But, you know, when I have good days like today, I'm happy to be able to Talk to you, uh, you know. I, I have so many great conversations with people about guns. On uh, earlier this week, I was on the Brady Campaign podcast, uh, talking to them about guns and gun culture, and trying to explain why it makes sense to people who are
1: involved in it. You know,
0: and I think that the more of those kind of conversations I have, the better I feel about it.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting because I know, and and this is actually one of the things that frustrates me about you know, a gun culture. Is there a lot of people that would hear that and be like, how could you talk to those people? And I would love to have like an actual conversation with, and I mean, and you know, cause you've seen me do it. Like I, I very much enjoy having a, you know, an actual good faith discussion with people that hold different points of view than I do. Um, do you, do you feel like they were receptive to what you had to say or not so much?
0: Yeah, no, I think, you know, I was, I was a bit guarded going in. You know, I've asked some questions about, you know, whether it was going to be fed live, whether they were going to edit it, what sort of editing they would do. Um, but, you know, once we started, they, they had read my work. They had sort of processed my work through the perspective of their concerns, but they asked me authentic questions. Uh, You know, I don't expect that just by virtue of my explaining gun culture to them from my perspective, that's going to all of a sudden make the Brady campaign change its goals and values. But, you know, I do think that that they were receptive to hearing what I had to say, and we had a a good conversation even if at the end of the day we may end up differing on what the the correct – uh, political processes are to address the issues that we're concerned about. But, like I said on their show, you know, I'm not pro criminal gun violence. I'm not pro suicide. I'm not pro unintentional injury with firearms. And you know, that at least offers us a, a the possibility of having a discussion of, you know, we're we're all against this. What's the what's the right thing to do to make inroads?
1: Well, and and that's kind of, you know, something that. I am realizing as I get older and my my partner pointed out to me just yesterday that, wow, you're getting a lot of gray in your beard. And I'm like, uh oh. so I guess maybe I'm maturing. I, I don't know. I, I guess that's what that means. But um,
0: <laughs> some people age, some people age without maturing, but uh, hopefully you're doing both.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm attempting. But the the thing that has struck me, I guess, and that I'm starting to understand a little bit more is most of the people that, you know, I have disagreed with in the past at base level share very similar values. And like, like you said, have the same concerns and it's just a matter of approach and what, you know, what is the answer? And everyone thinks their answer is the best answer. And, you know, and I do think, you know, I, I clearly value my own answers and, and all of that, but it, it can certainly hurt the conversation or completely shut, hey, you down, know, shut down the conversation.
0: Right. One thing that we're doing in the United States is just unprecedented in human history, which is trying to take a hundreds of millions of people who are all different, coming from different cultural backgrounds, geographies, you know, values and beliefs, and trying to live together in a single nation. Uh, you know, uh, many, many other people have tried to do this, and they oftentimes just decide, you know what, it'll be better. You go your way, we'll go our way. And we, you know, had some issues with that ourselves last, you know, in the 19th century. But, you know, the fact that we struggle to do this does not seem to me to be abnormal, right? And so, you know, we have different people who all are for freedom, but they understand freedom different ways. So, you know, that requires us to have a a politics that allows us to work out those differences, and you know that's the system that we've tried to create.
1: Well, it's certainly, you know, I, I deeply believe and support in the experiment, the grand experiment. Um, but, you know, I, I, I haven't had enough uh, alcohol to really start talking politics, especially publicly. The thing I do want to sort of segue into and. I think you will be exceedingly well placed to speak to this because I I am familiar with your research. So we are seeing two things happen right now and they are very interesting in that they seem diametrically opposed to one another. And the two things that we're seeing is you know a renewed push for restrictions on the type of guns you can own, you know, who can own them, how many, you know, where can you take them, all of that sort of thing. And then the flip side of that is we are seeing an expansion of, you know, 2A freedoms. You know, specifically there are now, as of September of this year, there are going to be 21 places where you can carry a gun, on your person concealed, without a permit. It's just something you can do. And we've also got a Supreme Court case coming up in October that very much looks like it will completely remove May issue from the national landscape. Um, You know, people will have to be given a concealed carry permit if they apply for it and there are no disqualifiers. What What's going on there? Well, how are these two things, you know, that seem so diametrically opposed, able to exist in the same, I guess, timeline?
0: Yeah, well, you know, I think that what you just said that you haven't uh, had enough alcohol to talk politics, but you maybe want to take a shot right now because, you know, the country really is. Divided up between very safely blue states and very safely red states and you know both red and blue gerrymander things to make sure that that's going to be you know largely the case into the future so the the wave of permitless carry which builds on uh, the wave of shall issue uh, really is has a strong foothold in those solidly red states uh, may issue remains in the solidly blue states, but the wild card here that creates that difference that you're talking about is the fact that uh, the Supreme Court has shifted fairly profoundly. So all of those people who, you know, held their noses and voted for Trump and uh, brought him to the presidency and got their three Supreme Court uh, justices, you know, are seeing the payoff of that now. And the Corlett case out of New York is, you know, has a very good chance of overturning the issue but that will be against the will of those blue state governments. So, um, you know, the those blue state governments will then continue to push for restrictions on types of weapons, magazine capacity, and those sorts of things, again, until those perhaps get challenged up to the Supreme Court level, and then under the current court, those sort of bans, I think, will not hold water. But, uh, you know, it's, it's a good point that a lot of the action that takes place is at the state level. You know, everyone looks to the federal government for for gun regulation, but the states are much more dynamic. Right.
1: Well, so we'll talk about that a little bit more. Right now we're talking with Professor David Yamane. You're listening to Ballistic Radio. Welcome back to Ballistic Radio, brought to you by Big Tech's Ordnance, where every customer is a friend, not just an order. Visit them online at bigtechsordinance.com. This segment brought to you by Wilson Combat. Wilson Combat, makers of the finest custom 1911s and scatterguns since 1977. A legacy of quality, innovation, and service. Learn more about their firearms and accessories, as well as the EDC-X9 series of firearms, which offer discriminating shooters, 1911 match-grade accuracy, superior ergonomics and concealability with modern service pistol capacity, as well as reliability at WilsonCombat.com. So I, I have to say, David... Anytime I read the Wilson Combat ad and I get to the end, I'm trying to imagine why I wrote it the way that I did because it's really hard to read live on air. I'm not gonna not gonna lie. There's there's a lot of there's a lot of tongue twisters there.
0: Hey, I'm just glad that uh, guests on the show still get one.
1: <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, sure. It'll it'll be in the mail to your local FFL sometime in the next. Uh, you know eighty to ninety five years, like just just awesome. you hold your breath, it'll be there, I promise
0: <laughs> okay, I promise. I'm starting now,
1: okay, so well, so going back to okay, you know the current political landscape, <clears throat> and we seem to be experiencing an expansion of where and when people could carry firearms on their person for a long time though it was moving the opposite direction. And I guess my question to you would be, do you think that that is a result of the overall gun culture shifting away from target shooters and hunters to more personal protection-minded people?
0: Yeah, you know, I think as I talk about in this uh, little book, Concealed Carry Revolution, that I published earlier this year, because no one had really written a short uh, kind of history of this story, you know, prior to the early 1800s, most people, sort of most white male citizens, at least, could carry firearms concealed without regulation. And it wasn't until there was a movement against that, uh, starting in the southern states and then expanding to the north, uh, and really lasting well into the 20th century, that there were restrictions on concealed carry. So this movement away from those that restricted era towards the shall issue era that we saw coming into place, it really was part of a cultural shift that was taking place in gun culture. Self-defense has always been a part of American gun culture and gun ownership but it hasn't had the emphasis that it's had until the post-1960s era when you know, people within the culture really started to place a greater emphasis on the defensive aspect of gun ownership, and one of the primary legal vehicles for that became concealed carry. So I think the, the cultural shift toward gun culture 2.0 and the legal shift toward a liberalization of gun laws go hand in hand.
1: So when you say liberalization of gun laws, um, do you mind expanding on that just a little bit? Because I <laughs> liberal is kind of a bad word uh, in certain circles for those that don't understand its actual, you know, et- entomology, I guess. Um, do you you want to take a second on that?
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it's a little bit of a, a tweak because, you know, liberal tends to mean someone on the left, maybe a progressive, someone who's more, you know, pro-government or pro-regulation, but, you know, the word liberal has a lot in common with the word liberty, and if we think about that aspect of liberal politics that is in favor of civil liberties, uh, then, you know, we can see that the right to keep and bear arms is a civil liberty, and so when I talk about the liberalization of gun laws, I you know, I mean laws that that make the, that civil liberty more possible. Um, it's not a, the typical way that term would be used today, but, you know, there's a way of kind of, uh, you know, trying to get people to think about the, what those laws do in a different way. Right.
1: And <clears throat> let me, let me cogitate for a moment and think, okay. So we're seeing this, we, we, we've we got all of these different things going on. So we've got the makeup of the Supreme Court has shifted. We've got gun culture has shifted to, and, and as you said, it's there's always been an element of personal protection in gun culture, but it seems, at least from my, you know, I guess at this point, 34 years of experience, um, that there's been less and less of an emphasis on the outdoorsy hunting sort of framework surrounding gun culture and more of an emphasis on guns are to keep people from hurt hurting you. Um, and we've also seen a really weird couple of years as far as people's interaction with law enforcement, uh, people's interaction with the government at large, you know, people's fears towards civil unrest. Do you think it's kind of like this almost perfect storm of factors that yeah, okay, the political parties have their points of view, but maybe the water is a little bit more muddy for regular people now?
0: Yeah, I think, you know, this is
1: why I kind of, and this is what I'm trying to do in in the larger
0: Brook project I'm working on is sort of tell the story of my personal journey into guns, but realizing that I'm not some unique individual, but that it really is... cultural, social, political, and legal environment that makes the decision to become a gun owner and a concealed carrier much easier than it's ever been, except perhaps, you know, back in the, in the 17th century or 18th century. Um, but, you know, we, we live in a different legal environment. We live in a different uh, social environment in the sense that our society is becoming more urban and suburban. Right. So as we shift from being a more rural society to a more urban and suburban society, you know, those opportunities for getting into guns, for hunting and recreational shooting, uh, you know, just going out on the farm and, and having some fun, those are just less real. So you know, that also motivates that. Uh, you know, so all of those things, we, some of the fracturing of our society that took place in the 1960s around issues of civil rights, cultural change, uh, those sorts of things, you know, created a lot of instability, social unrest, lack of trust, right? And those things also tend to motivate people to, you know, want to defend themselves and firearms step into that as becoming a natural uh, vehicle for defense. So, you know, I think, as you said, it is a a kind of perfect storm that's that's been building since the 1960s. And just took that earlier reality of defensive guns and just forced it right right to the center. And then you know you have lots of groups and organizations who also, uh, you know for ideological or monetary reasons, want to build on that. right. So the gun training industry, right didn't really exist for private citizens before you know, gunsight in 1976, 77. Right, but once that becomes a reality, lots of other people say, "Hey, you know what? People can legally conceal carry. They want defensive guns. I'm guess what? I'm a gun trainer." Right, uh, and you know what a massive prol- proliferation of uh, the gun training cottage industry we've seen over the the last few decades.
1: Well, and it's it's interesting for me because. What what's actually odd about it is I've worked inside of the industry long enough now that I actually have a perspective. And I used to think that I had a perspective, but I really didn't. I had uh I had like a snapshot of like my place and time right then. And but watching <clears throat> even over the last five or six years, the number of really good, I mean, just really good training that has become available, it's it's encouraging. I mean it's very encouraging. And and seeing some of the overall concepts sort of filter their way through. Um and seeing people teaching things where they don't even necessarily know where it came from, but they're teaching good stuff. And like I'd like for them to know where it came from, but, you know, whatever. The information's the information. Um what let me let me think about this for a second so do you think that as things progress that this will become a less i don't know volatile issue like like it's becoming more and more normalized right is there any point on the timeline where people just chill out and and this isn't a you know left of center right of center issue and or like hey this is this is just how it is let's go argue about something else
0: i mean i, I am terrible at uh, prediction but i would not bet on the issue becoming less fraught uh, you know guns are such a Rorschach test in our society today you know that you could take the same phenomena same event and and people just see it so radically different depending on their perspective on guns and a lot of that is you know deeply rooted in in personal experience now, I lived 42 years of my life without seeing touching or firing a real gun and and for most of those years I saw no point no use you know anything that I associated with guns up to then was negative because that's the only experience I have with guns, uh, albeit indirectly through the media, uh, and for other people, their predominant uh, experience with guns is are you know positive experiences, connecting with other people, protecting themselves, whatever. So you know in, until those kind of experiential differences break down completely, there's always going to be, I think, different emotional responses. To guns, and even as guns become more normal for uh, a growing kind of set of people, you know, I think these new and non-traditional gun owners who flooded in during this great gun buying spree of the last 18 months, you know, really create a whole new set of people who have more positive experiences with guns. Um, you know, there's there's still among our hundreds of millions of people in the country going to be a, a kind of divide between the the third who are no guns, never, and the third who are yes guns, always, and then, you know, the fighting over those people in the middle.
1: Okay. Um, we'll talk about that a little bit more when we get back from break. Right now, we're, we're having a lovely discussion with Professor David Yamani. You're listening to Ballistic Radio. Welcome back to Ballistic Radio, brought to you by Big Tech's Ordnance. Where every customer is a friend, not just an order. Visit them online at BigTexOrdnance.com. This segment also brought to you by BigTexOrdnance.com. BigTexOrdnance.com is the best place for you to find all of your everyday carry needs at the absolute best price. Maybe you need all the Candela from ModLight at the lowest price. No problem. Spend too much time alone in your room and now you need an optic on your carry pistol. Well com has those. Glock accessories, yes. Fast sheep shipping, 100% hassle-free returns, all that and more. And best of all, BigTaxOrdnance.com has Ike. He's a good man and thorough. I like Ike. Everybody likes Ike. And you'll like Ike, too. Visit BigTaxOrdnance.com today and find out what happens when every customer is a friend, not just an order. So what, what just happened there, David, was I intended to say cheap what I ended up saying was sheep. And and then I was just <laughs> trying not to laugh during the ad, like sort of picturing what sheep shipping was. Um and do your
0: sponsors get a discount when you do that?
1: No. No, but people it's I've I've had people ask me why I don't just pre record the ads because it would it would make my life easier. Uh the ad would be the same every single time. There would be no variation. Um I have heard from listeners that they really really enjoy when I mess them up which does happen every once in a while so and and I find new and interesting ways to mess up the ads sometimes so uh you know I feel like
0: actually now that I think about it they should pay a premium for that because people probably listen to the ads so closely just waiting for you to screw them up. You know, it's not like I'm going to fast forward to get past the ad because I want to see like, how is John going to screw it up this time?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I don't know. I don't know. I'm can I, can I
0: turn the tables on you and ask a question of you? Yeah, of course. Is that allowed in this format? Um,
1: yeah, actually, you know, and I, I'm excited. Go ahead.
0: So, you know, one of the things that we were talking about this
1: massive growth in the gun
0: training, uh industry and the fact that there is a a kind of growing body of, say, information that people are commonly drawing on, some very, you know, high-level training happening. Uh, But there's also some not-so-high-quality training happening. And one of the things that that I observe about the gun training uh, industry is that it's, it's not professionalized in the sense that it doesn't have a codified sort of core set of principles and practices that are governed by an association uh, that that sort of certifies or, or credentials people as professionals within the industry. And I'm wondering if, as a gun trainer yourself, do you think that's a problem? Uh, is it something that, you know, would gun training benefit from having uh, a professional association, even if not every gun trainer joined it, but if many people did join it and then I as a consumer could say, oh, that person is part of the, the professional association of gun trainers, I can trust that they're going to do a certain set of things.
1: Huh. Well, so it's man, that that's that's an incredible question. And it is there there are a couple of different pieces to that. So and the first piece is who decides, right? And, you know, so if I'm... Do, do I want to be in charge of something like that? Absolutely not. But if I got to, like, rub a magic lamp tomorrow and, you know, I am somehow put in charge of something like that and I get to determine what's important what's not, would would I be okay with it? Uh, no, probably not. Still, because the stuff that I think is important, of course, you know, I I value my own opinion on that, but not everyone agrees, right? And that and that's the primary thing is that, and, and this is something with the training industry that we don't like to discuss. But a lot of the stuff that we fight tooth and nail over, there's not one right answer to. Um. <clears throat> And human beings don't like that, you know. We want we want solid answers to whatever it is, you know, is the question. Now there are certain pieces of this that I think are super important. So like we're gonna we're gonna practice risk mitigation as much as possible. We're we're going to be very aware of you know Claude Werner's negative out, outcomes and serious mistakes gun owners make. Like so, any anything that I would come up with would be you know, really focused on stuff like that. But as far as, you know, if there were a governing body of professional firearms instructors, what is the focus going to be on? Well, the focus is probably going to be on the way that you teach shooting technique, which to me is actually probably the least important thing, because as much as, you know, people like to throw the stones at, well, we're going to shoot Weaver, or, we're going to shoot modern ISO, or, you know, red dots or iron sights and all this dogmatic stuff like that, that doesn't actually matter. Not not really, right? Um, mm-hmm. And as far as, you know, having an, associ- an association to talk about the core concepts as far as, you know, avoidance, risk mitigation, the holistic approach to personal protection that involves more than just a gun, stuff like that, that'd be cool. Uh, I don't see it ever happening. And the other thing, too, I don't know if you know this about me, David, but I kind of have serious issues with authority. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. And that's uh, that kind of that kind of association would sort of go against the towel of John, you know. Mm.
0: Um, And I think a lot of gun gun trainers, you know, tend to that sort of libertarian side of the of the spectrum so it makes the notion of having a a central body which you know has the the authority to say yes and no naturally kind of off-putting I think
1: well without
0: you know self-organized body of gun trainers you know I think the default now has been that the NRA does the basic certification for for gun trainers and I don't know that that's I, I think a lot of people have some
1: issue with that in terms of uh, you know
0: the the quality of the, that certification.
1: Well, so and that's the other thing too, and we can talk about this for a second. I am an okay. I I I am an okay instructor. Uh, some people would say that I am a good instructor. Some people would say I'm an amazing instructor. Other people would say I suck. Right? So there's. There's a scale. I, you know, being the person I am, I will at least self-identify as okay. Uh, You know, maybe on my better days, I'm good, right? But the thing about that is that's something that took a long time. And it's something that I work amazingly hard at. And it's something that I am still working very hard at, right? And part of the problem with You know, this concept of who is going to teach what and how are they going to learn how to do that. There's not a 40 and it's not a 40 hour course, but let's just say, right, there's not a 40 hour course that can teach you one how to teach and two internalize this knowledge and give you an understanding of it and and one of the biggest issues i think inside of anything that we talk about and you know we're talking about guns but we could apply this to anything knowledge without understanding is pretty useless um you can you can vomit it up and you might be able to pass a test but you can't actually apply it to anything in a in a really functional sense you can fake it but it's not you know if you're presented with anything novel, you're not going to be able to, you know, work around that, right? And I don't think people like to hear that either. It's like if if you're going to go out and teach this stuff, you know, usually here's here's what I hear a lot, and I, I'd be curious to, you know, get your thoughts on it. But oh, I want to I want to go teach basic classes. So I'm just going to go get my certification and and teach basic classes. And the problem. And I remember I had uh, Kathy Jackson and um, Mike Grasso on. And, you know, they were sharing their experiences. And I can't remember who initially brought it up. I think it might have been Michael. But it was essentially when he was with the LAPD, the most experienced instructors were the ones that taught the basic classes. And until we get people to understand that the people teaching the very foundational level basic classes are the people that should have the deepest depth of knowledge on this and the broadest understanding of the concepts that we're discussing We're we're still gonna run into issues and right now the model is I'm just gonna teach basic stuff so I need to have a basic level of knowledge And any governing body that we would be likely to come up with, whether it's the, you know, the NRA or um, any of the other associations that are coming up with instructor certification programs or, you know, anybody, like, they're not going to make an instructor pipeline that takes five years. It's it's not going to happen. But Mm -hmm. that's probably what needs to happen. You know, so how do you solve that and yeah. and that's that's my primary thing with you know whenever let's get an association or let's get a governing body uh that'd be my first question what's the instructor pipeline look like well we're going to have 16 yeah. hour class or 24 hour class or a 40 hour class or or an 80 hour class nope nope and and that's the issue you know yeah so
0: of you know, in, in you know, my you know, field or any academic field, you, know, you, you go on, undergo a, a long educational process, you know, anywhere from four to seven or 10 years. Uh, you know, then you get your doctoral degree and then you serve an apprenticeship for five or six or seven years as an assistant professor and then you have know, tenure and promotion. And you know, so the, the process by which you become part of that guild takes years or decades um, but the, the iron, ironic thing about it that connects back to what you said is that the higher you move up on that, that ladder, the less time you spend teaching introductory level courses unless you choose to. Yep. So I always teach intro soci because I just love to be the first person to introduce students to sociology. Uh, but if you know, I didn't want to teach those courses, I wouldn't have to. Uh, when I was an undergraduate at Berkeley, Glenn Seaborg, who won the Nobel Prize in Chemistry, always taught introduction to chemistry because he thought I'm the best person to teach introduction to chemistry because I fucking won a Nobel prize. Yeah, right? um, but, you know, how many but how many people make that choice? Very few. And I think probably it's mirrored uh, you know, to some extent in the gun training industry, right? the more experience uh, you know, and the uh, higher you move up in that pecking order. You know, the less you might teach a first
1: shot class. How
0: amazing would it be for Tom Givens to teach a first shot
1: class? um, That'd be pretty cool. I mean, and, you know, but you've got people like Brian Hill. And what's funny is, you know, Brian, one, I love Brian. Two, I don't agree with everything he teaches, which is fine. Uh, I do think he's probably the best living coach there is inside of our industry right now, specifically his ability to connect with students in a way, in a place that is what they need right then. But, you know, I was at one of his first shot classes. I observed it. And, you know, I've been doing this a while and I got so much out of just watching that class and and yeah that's the thing, and I'm to be really clear too, like I'm a hypocrite because like i I know that you know I have a above average level of knowledge inside of this specific thing, like my lane as far as you know the the firearms training right, and I'm not teaching any first shot classes, I'm not going out and speaking to any of the you know the the personal protection, social clubs slash shooting groups. Um, because yeah, it's, it can be a slog, right? But you know, that, that should be what I'm doing. Like if I, if I'm going to put my money where my mouth is, um, yeah, I, I should be doing that. and I'm not. And, and that's, that's a hard thing. How do you motivate the people that know to go and do that? Because, this is the other thing like, so you're talking about you teach your intro to social class because you enjoy it and you want to be the one that gives the first exposure. Right. But I assume, and correct me if I'm wrong. So you're salaried at the university and you're going to, you're going to get paid what you get paid, whether or not you teach intro to social or, you know, advanced tactical fantasy social classes. Right. (laughs) Um, Whereas, you know, for firearms instructors, like, I'm not going to make anything teaching a basic class. Not, like, to 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 structure that in a way that it was financially viable for me would be difficult to do and unlikely to do. Because a bunch of the people that went and took the, you know, the 16-hour certification, now I'm an instructor... Are running those classes for forty bucks a pop, right? Um, and and that's great, that's great, and they're getting the number of students that they get. You know, if I offer the same class for, you know, a hundred or two hundred dollars a pop, or whatever made sense for my business model, um, who are they going to pick—the forty-dollar one or the two hundred-dollar one? Yeah, and how, how do you solve that problem? I don't know. I mean... Uh, I, that's a good
0: point. I mean, you when when you went to the Complete Combatant and taught stupid human tricks with guns yeah. and the David Core was entry-level pistol essentials that uh, Brian and Shelly Hill taught, you probably made more for that time than they made for their time.
1: Um, yeah, maybe. Uh, if we're looking at, like, a per hour now, if you figure in you know travel and blah 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 i i have no idea like i i have no idea and you know so and that gets into all sorts of weeds of do <laughs> do gun trainers actually make money and you know the answer is no for the most yeah. part right so it's already a labor of love and you know there's a difference between a labor of love where it's like okay i'm not losing any money versus ugh. and you know could i make money doing it turning it into a puppy mill sure like i i theoretically i know how that would work i just am not going to do that cuz then then it's a different animal again and it, it's this very complex situation it seems like to me and it's all of these factors and yeah i don't i don't know um we have to go to We have to go to break, and if you want to ask me another question, I guess, but I don't think people actually want to listen to me talk. I don't know. Um, But right now we're talking with Professor David Yamane. You're listening to Ballistic Radio. Welcome back to Ballistic Radio, brought to you by Big Tech's Ordnance, where every customer is a friend, not just an order. Visit them online at Ordnance. Com. so we're talking with Professor David Yamane, and we are just wandering all over the place, and I, I dig it, I love it. So I thought we were on a, a very
0: consistent trajectory.
1: That's, I mean, you got to understand that for the way my brain works, whether I'm on a consistent trajectory or not, it feels like I'm all over, I'm I'm in all four lanes, just weaving back and forth. So and that's more of a function of my brain chemistry, though, and, you know, how my neurons are structured or something like that. But to to answer your original question, um, a governing body that wasn't controlled by humans who do human things and was actually cool. Yeah, OK. But <laughs> I... <laughs> I, I think I have also addressed my concerns in that statement, you know? Yeah. But well,
0: I think the one of the other things, you know, sort of towards the end of this uh, Concealed Carry Revolution book, I uh, talk about is the differences in in the regulatory regimes across different child issue states and that whole question of do you have to take a class or not, you know, and people who are sort of concerned about concealed carry or opposed to it are, always talking about, oh, my gosh, you know, people are going to be they can carry a gun concealed in the in the streets without having any proof that they actually know how to use it. Uh, this is obviously even more so the case with permitless carry. Sure. Uh, but you've you've expressed many reservations about, you know, the idea that having a gun training class associated with concealed carry permits itself you know being problematic uh, given you know both sort of the quality and as you said these are anytime you introduce regulation into human beings uh you're going to have a lot of uh, unintended uh consequences
1: sure and again well so here's the here's the thing right so you and be honest okay so you you're in a field where the people that work in that field are as you said, very highly educated, and also undergo some sort of apprenticeship program, right? Is, is are those fair statements? Yes. Okay. How many of them still suck anyway?
0: <laughs> uh, lot, I mean, lots. Yeah. I mean, there, you know, there are there are points at which, you know, people removed from the process. You know, some people get a, you know, they're in a Ph.D. program, they get a master's degree and, and are asked to leave. Many people end up in this state of, we call it ABD, all but dissertation. So they've completed all the requirements of the doctorate, uh, but they haven't written their dissertation, so they never get a Ph.D. Um, some Ph.D.s don't get jobs. Some people with jobs don't get tenure. Uh, so there are lots of places that you can, you can fall out, but, you know, there's still, Uh, Many people who manage to make it through those various SIVs, you know, who I think are are kind of underperformers. So, um, yeah, but I I can only imagine what it would be like if there weren't those SIVs in place.
1: Sure. But I mean, ultimately, the problem with any program is there is not a program that can make people care. And and what I mean by that is, you know, I deeply care about my students and what happens to them. I also had moments in my history where I was teaching because of me. And what I thought being an instructor said about me or made me or it, it was about my self-image. And, you know, I have hopefully shifted away from that i deeply care i deeply deeply care and all of the instructors that you know i look up to or try and emulate they deeply care too the thing is that again i can't i can't think of an instructor pipeline or you know a, a phd program that can make the the person that comes out the other side of that care about the student and you know like actually not not right. like in a theoretical sense but like to a core of their being sense and like i know you care about your students i've i've been there when you've taught uh and it's neat to watch and like when an instructor has it you can see it i mean it's very obvious and it's also readily apparent when it's not there, so what do you do about that? And that goes back to okay, you know, training classes and training classes for concealed carry students that are mandated by the state. Um, you can't mandate instructors that care, and and that's part of the problem too, you know. Yeah. Um, well, I
0: think the the level of qualification for teaching those courses in most states is extremely low so you know the more i've been around guns people constantly ask me oh you know are you going to become a certified instructor and i'm like i can barely shoot myself why would i think that just because i can shoot okay that i would want to teach other people but to teach this uh concealed carry class in the state of north carolina you have to be an nra certified instructor or have some other similar certification And you have to take uh, a one-day class and pass a test at that one-day class, which I did and, you know, passed the the test with 100% because it was a very easy test, right? So I could easily bring those two things together and teach concealed carry classes in North Carolina. But I would never presume to do that because of the massive responsibility that that entails.
1: Mm -hmm. But I've also
0: sat in on lots of concealed carry classes in the state of North Carolina, where the people who were teaching them did not have that same level of you know sense of responsibility and were you know you know clearly in it because it was a good way you know to make seventy five dollars off of twenty students every other Saturday. Well,
1: and that's the thing. So, like, here's here's kind of how I look at it. And Frank, here, I I I rub a magic lamp tomorrow, and I get to I get to be dictator for a day and I'm going to make a governing body for firearms instructors. All right, here, here, here's what, here's what that looks like. Um, I get to make a wish and the wish is going to be this. It's going to be that every single instructor, when they look at their student, they look at them, they imagine every single person in that student's life that loves them, cares about them, relies on them, or needs them. Every, every single one of those threads, every one, single one of those human interactions. And they imagine that so deeply that they can feel it. Like, and then they need to understand that that person is trusting them to tell them something to keep them from dying on the worst day of their life. And if the instructor messes it up, they die, the student does, and all of those threads are just severed instantaneously. And that's the level of responsibility that an instructor should have and feel deeply at every single moment of their interaction with a student. Yeah. So, so, yeah, if, if, if I get to make a wish tomorrow and make a governing body, somehow there's a way to infuse that into every single instructor you know Um,
0: and that that's you know i think impossible that's impossible to certify for one but it it also highlights the need you know for people if they are seeking out that that sort of training is to to use the information that is available out there you know whether it's you know review course reviews blogs about instructors Uh, word of mouth, you know, people using networks to, to figure out who's going to bring that ethos to their teaching.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know. It's, um, I've seen it. I mean, I, I, I
0: know he may or may not, uh, uh, cop to it, but when I observed, uh, I took the course but you know, I was also observing John Murphy's, uh, course, you know, at the end of the course, he's sort of Doing his wrap up and saying why he's teaching this course and what he hoped for his students. And he had tears in his eyes.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, I've, I've, I have experienced and seen that multiple different times with multiple different instructors, the good ones. You know, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. Like, if you mess up on the range, your student can die in front of you. Like, so there's that. Um, You know, you don't, you have no idea what thing you're going to say is the thing that they need to hear that will have some sort of weird ripple effect three years later or, or 10 years later. Um, and and that's the thing. And, and that's what, you know, I don't know. Anyway, this this part does feel like a a slight divergence from from the from the overall topic of the show. But I but but I think it's important.
0: It ties in in still because, you know, it's about we have this massive liberalization of the right to carry arms in public. But what what goes on with that? What goes along with that? Mm -hmm. You know, what what could we do to make that work? So, well, you know, you had talked about whether this polarization was going to go away, but the the better and better guns work in society, including concealed carry, the less of a fraught issue it can become. And, you know, getting people to understand how guns work and the, the dangers that they bring and how to use them responsibly, legally, ethically, you know, I think that's all part of the package.
1: Yeah, yeah. Hey, we're, we're up on the end of the show at, uh, that was a quick, quick episode, but if people want to either buy your book or read your excellent blog posts or challenge themselves to think about points of view that they've not maybe considered, uh, where could they do that at?
0: Concealed Carry Revolution is available uh, on Amazon. It also has broader distribution. You can get it by special order through pretty much any bookstore, barnesandnoble.com. Unfortunately, the people I was working with to produce the book screwed up the e-copy, and so that was supposed to be as available as a Kindle, but it's not. But uh, there are ways that you can get an e-copy directly from me. For information on that, you can go to either my Gun Culture 2.0 blog or my Gun Curious blog. If you Google either Gun Culture 2.0 or Gun Curious, you'll see those things. Also, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. You know, I'm out there and uh, love connecting with people.
1: Yeah. David, thanks so much. Um, I i think your voice inside of all of this is incredibly valuable. I, I love the perspective that you bring to this. Uh, and I have very much benefited and enjoyed your friendship over the last uh, several years now at this point. So thank, thanks for, one, that, and two, taking time out of your morning to come talk to us. I really appreciate it. I'm
0: um, happy to do it. I appreciate your friendship and sharing this platform with me
1: uh, a little bit also. Yeah, no worries. Hey, enjoy the rest of your day. Give my best to uh, Sandy, and I'll talk to you soon, okay?
0: That sounds good.
1: We'll do. Alright. Hey guys, make sure you check out our website ballisticradio.com, like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash ballistic radio. And hey, keep leaving those five-star review on iTunes if you think we've earned it. It helps us out. Thanks for listening, everyone. As always, be safe and see you next week.